0: Well, if you're visiting with us this morning, we are in a series in the book of Genesis. We've just, we've just gotten started. We're in Genesis chapter 3. And what I want to remind everybody is, uh, because this is uh, you know, several, several sermons in, in Genesis chapters 2 and 3, that chapters 2 and 3 go together. Those, those big numbers, 2 and 3, just kind of erase those from your Bible it's just it's just one block of text it all goes together think of them as one chapter with no division or separation whatsoever yes the two chapters are being covered in five sermons but think of them as one God has created the earth and he has planted a special garden paradise in Eden and God has formed man from the dust of the earth and graciously placed him into his garden and the man had access to everything Except to help her. So God made a woman from the man and gave her to the man as his wife. And they were together with God in his garden paradise, and they were naked and they were not ashamed. They were before God in innocence. And with no pause, the serpent enters the garden and starts talking to the woman. It's just like that, it's just that quick. And the woman listens. She listens to the serpent's lies and believes his deception. And you already know this is not going to go well. She ignores God's word and acts on Satan's word. And she eats the fruit, and Adam does too. This is terrible. Everything's wrecked. It's almost impossible for you and I to visualize how catastrophic this is. What I think of is the images on the news of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It's the closest thing I can grab hold of. I I don't know if you can think back a few months, pictures of Ukraine, rumors of war over here, and the people are just walking through the streets, doing all the things that they're doing. The president is saying, don't worry about anything, everything's fine. And they're just going about their lovely daily lives in Kyiv. And then one day, war. Just like that. Missiles. Can't even see them coming. And suddenly buildings are just leveled and there's rubble in the streets and the people are running everywhere. Children are dead in schools. Patients are dead in hospitals. Mothers and children are flowing by the millions to the borders to seek Refugee status in next-door countries. Men are being armed and and handing guns to go fight. Burned-out buildings and burned-out tanks and burned-out helicopters. And now that state of war just drags on. And that fighting just continues. And the landscape is scorched earth. Maybe that's a way of imagining the fall that took place. The fall is a catastrophe from our point of view. The fall changes a lot of things, but it doesn't change everything. It certainly doesn't change God. It doesn't change the truth of his word. It doesn't change the purpose of his glory. It doesn't change the power of his will or the fact that he will eventually bring it about. And that's what Genesis is here to teach us. That before the foundation of the world, according to Ephesians chapter 1, God chose us in Christ that even after the fall, we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, God predestined us for adoption as sons through the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will and to the praise of His glorious grace. In Genesis chapter 3, we see our three enemies sin, death, and the devil. And we see God's promise of the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, who will conquer all three on our behalf. So when we read about God's judgment on the woman and the man in verses 16 to 19, we read it in light of the hope that has been declared before in verse 15. See, this is important. Even as God judges the sin of the woman and the man, God is gracious in offering mercy. As we look at God's judgment on sin, his just judgment on sin, I pray that unbelievers this morning would also see God's grace. His offer of forgiveness and his promise of life in Jesus Christ. So let's read Genesis chapter 3 and this morning verses... 14 to 19. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, the parties involved in this original sin. And first, he curses the snake to humiliation and Satan to destruction. And it would seem reasonable to expect the Lord God to curse the woman and the man to destruction as well, or at least to utter humiliation. After all, he had declared that the penalty for eating the fruit he commanded them not to eat would be death. And while death will come to human people, this human couple... It's not a curse to destruction. It's a punishment for sin. Because of sin, life will be different. In verses 14 to 19, we see almost all the basic problems that we face today in life. The problem of temptation and sin. The problem of animosity towards God, enmity towards Satan, and enmity towards one another. Struggles in marriage, pain in childbearing toil at your job, difficulty providing enough for everyone to eat, we will toil and struggle all of our lives, and in the end, we will not be able to avoid returning to the dust. Now, I think we tend to read God's judgments on the man and the woman as a curse. But the Lord does not curse them, not like he curses Satan. Now, I don't want to minimize or soften God's just judgment on sin, but I do want us to bring to light what we often miss in this passage. That God's words of judgment are also words of mercy and even hope. Life as they knew it in the paradise of the garden has fallen, but it's not hell. After Genesis 3... There will be a Genesis chapter 4 and 5. The woman and the man will continue on, and that by the mercy of God. There's bad news here for the woman and the man, but but it's not the worst news that it could be. The order in which God addresses the parties to sin is so important. God's judgment of the woman and the man in verses 16 to 19 come after God's promise of hope in verse 15. They heard it. They heard God's words. They heard the promise of hope that he made. Yes, life will be more difficult than it was in the garden. But we need to understand God's words to the woman and the man in light of his promise of hope in the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, who will restore all things. First, God judges the woman. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So God does not curse the woman, nor does he humiliate her. He does not reduce her made in the image of God's status. She still bears the image of God, and she still has the same role as before. God does not do away with childbearing. She is still to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And God does not do away with marriage. She is still to be a helper fit for Adam. Let me say it this way. Marriage is not a curse. Childbearing is not a curse. Both remain blessings of God after the fall. Marriage and childbearing are still good gifts from God. Marriage and childbearing remain the natural order from creation. And we have hope in marriage and childbearing because there's hope in Jesus, the seed of the woman. But because of sin, the joy of marriage and the joy of childbearing is now mixed with sorrow. When we read, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children, we should not read that childbearing is only and always painful now, and that it's all that there is, is the pain. God does not take away the joy. God does not take away the joy and the blessing of bearing children. Childbearing was and is still for the service of God and his glory. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It is still joy. But sorrow and pain has been added. Whether the original concept of childbearing involved pain, no pain, or a little pain, it is the deliberate act of God to multiply that pain. I think we tend to relate this to the moment of labor and delivery. We have drugs and epidurals to alleviate that pain at delivery, don't we? We've been very resourceful. But I think this has a much broader application. I mean, the old, the old King James Version reads, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. I think this is, this is more than just delivery. The whole thing is difficult now. Some couples are so conflicted that they don't know whether a positive pregnancy test is a good thing or a bad thing. Some couples experience sorrow when they can't conceive. Some women experience pain and discomfort and difficulty carrying their babies to full term. It's not uncommon for women to have miscarriages or for babies to be stillborn. The whole process is fraught with sorrow. And then there's the pain of delivery. And what often follows is the pain of nourishing an infant. I'll just stop there. There's pain involved. And then comes normal postpartum or complicated postpartum experiences. To the great joy of childbirth is added misery. Why? To cause the woman to look to God for her redemption, to cause the woman to look to God for her redemption and not to childbearing. Why would she, why would she look to childbearing for her redemption? Because she was given childbearing as the way to bring glory to God before the fall. And if she could go on to do so after the fall, she might earn her way back into the garden. It's it's just a works orientation to redemption. But this sorrow is a touch of God that humbles the woman and causes her to look to God, not childbearing for her redemption. Her hope is not in her works, but in the promised seed. Faith in Jesus Christ is the only way to redemption. After the fall. And one day, one of her children will crush Satan's head. Let me say just a little bit more about this. In the garden, God established a covenant of works with the man and the woman. They were innocent. They had not sinned. They had no need for redemption. God's covenant with them was for them to obey his word and to serve him, and all would be glorious. They broke God's covenant of works. By believing in the devil's lies and serving themselves, when they ate the fruit God commanded them not to eat. God never again instituted a covenant of works because we could not keep it. Immediately, however, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God established a covenant of grace. Immediately. The covenant of grace that continues to this very moment today. Salvation from sin would come only by faith in the promised seed of the woman. The same one covenant of grace is God's only means for the salvation of sinners. The woman's hope must be in the gospel seed. The Lord God said to the woman, Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Again, God has not done away with marriage. And marriage is not cursed. God's one-flesh marriage relationship between one man and one woman with a lifetime commitment is still in force after the fall. It remains a creation ordinance and a good gift from God. God did not take away the joy of marriage. But because of sin, he has introduced sorrow, conflict, tension, and frustration. The man and his wife are still to obey God's word and serve him, but it's going to be difficult now. We have to sort out this proper understanding of her desire for her husband and his rule over her. Those seem to be the things we need to kind of sort out to understand what's taking place here. And at a surface glance, her desire shall be for her husband sounds like kind of a good thing. Like, you know, she's really into him. You know, her desires for her husband. But, but that's not what this means. Uh, God speaks these same words to Cain just a few verses over into chapter 4, verse 7, when God says to Cain, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. The, the phrasing is, is nearly exact. Meaning, sin has a desire to dominate Cain. In the same way, the woman now has a desire to dominate her husband. This is the sorrow that God has introduced into marriage because of sin. So part of the conflict in marriage is that the woman desires to rule over her husband when she's supposed to be a helper to him. And the other part, which was also in the verses to Cain, of the conflict of marriage, is that the man now acts to rule over and master his wife in response when he's supposed to care for her. Now we know that the New Testament commands the wife to submit to her husband's headship and to respect him, but Scripture never gives the husband the right to force that submission. Not in the New Testament, not here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. A wife's submission is to be willing and voluntary. And while this is the right understanding of God's judgment here, an overly severe reading of verse 16 leads to overly severe treatment like abuse which is not counseled. It's nowhere countenanced in Scripture. We find another use of this same word desire in the Song of Solomon. Now, that's a a little further away from its original use here than than chapter 4. But but here, think in in the Psalm of Solomon, in uh, chapter 7, verse 10. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Here, the Shulamite woman has given herself to Solomon. And Solomon has a right desire for her. And the context of this desire is love. Later, in the, in the next verse, she will say, I, I will give my love to you. And so I draw your attention to this because it, it reflects Adam and Eve's right marriage relationship in the garden before the fall. Yes. Because of sin, even now has a selfish, Eve now has a selfish desire in marriage to run things her way. But it's not her only desire. She still possesses her original desire to be married to Adam and to be a helper to him. See, an overly severe reading would say that, oh, this is is all and only what what Eve's all about now: it's to take over the marriage. God has not cursed marriage. God did not place enmity between the husband and the wife. He didn't do that. It's not Eve's singular desire to always rule over her husband. That'd be an overly severe reading and a mistaken reading. God has not changed her role as helper. He has not changed her role to be fruitful and multiply. He has not removed her responsibility to serve the Lord God. This is the exact same relationship that was before sin. Her original desire is still for her husband. Even though it's mixed with a new desire to kind of want to have her way. Her original desire is for her husband think about it this way. Even though he abandoned her to the wrath of God. Do you remember that? Lord, it was the woman. I mean, with that one thing, we know he's not worthy of her. But she still desires to be a helper to her husband in marriage, to the glory of God. She submits to her husband even though he's not a great leader, is he? Her submission is voluntary and she willingly gives herself to him in light of his sin and failure, in light of her pain, not in the context of enmity as between her and Satan, but in the context of loving, a loving one-flesh marriage relationship. two sinners live together in marriage. And it's disappointing. It's disappointing in that it's not the way it could have been for them in the garden paradise. And the sorrow that God has introduced in marriage and childbearing won't let them forget that. They know that they need a Savior. And they know that the Lord has promised one. So Eve has hope in the promised seed of the woman for her marriage and for her childbearing. Then God judges Adam in verse 17. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return let me ask you a question have you have you noticed how prominent the subject of eating is in the bible look at how prominent the subject of eating is just in Genesis chapters 2 and 3. We can even back up to the, to the sixth day at the end of Genesis chapter 1. I mean, all, all this magnificent creation, this, this awesome, majestic power. And in verse 29, on the sixth day, God gives him food. He stops and says, here's food. Every seed-bearing tree and plant on the earth. Every seed-bearing tree and plant on the earth. Makes me wonder, question I can't answer, if the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was, was a fruit that was not seed-bearing. Interesting. Of all the things that God could say in creation, his word provides them food to eat. When we we zero in on this in chapter 2, verse 9, in the garden paradise, all the trees are beautiful and they're good for food. And after creating Adam, the first thing he says to him is, is, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. You know, And there are, there are rivers, and there are, there's, there's springs to water the ground so that the trees will always be fruitful. There will always be food. I mean, what could be so important? Maybe Adam, on, on day seven, there in the garden, or on day six, is, is thinking, hey, God, I wonder what there is to do around here. You know, what might you think when you wake up in a new place? But the first thing God tells him is, there's food. There's food for you to eat. And you can eat of all of this stuff. And, and even God's first prohibition... Is about eating, isn't it? Yeah, you can't eat from that tree because it'll kill you. The words of God are so tightly tied to the food that nourishes and gives life that half of his speech in chapters 2 and 3 are about eating. It ties what nourishes us so that we can live to the word of God. It becomes apparent, even in the first three chapters of Genesis, that it is not the food itself that's necessary for life, but the word of God that's necessary for life. And we see this even when we move beyond the garden. In Egypt, Pharaoh is starving the people. Moses leads them into the wilderness where there's no food. And God speaks, and he gives them manna. And they ask for meat, so God gives them quail. And when they want to complain about God, what do they complain about? The food. Oh, the food in Egypt was much better than we received on this trip. Throughout Scripture, the blessing of God is rain for crops to eat, and the judgment of God is is drought and a lack of crops to eat, based on their obedience to his word. When Satan, that serpent of old, tempts Jesus in the wilderness, he says, turn these stones into bread so you can eat. It's been 40 days, you must be starving. Do you remember how Jesus answers him? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And then Jesus tells his disciples to eat his body and to drink his blood because he is the bread of life, the living word of God. And he turns that into an ordinance of the church, the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper makes visible this connection made in Scripture when we consume that which nourishes us. When we consume the Word of God, Jesus, the living Word of God, given to us that we might have life out of death. And so from Genesis to Jesus, God's Word is tightly connected to eating What nourishes us and what gives us life? Adam's in trouble, not because he was deceived, but because he willfully chose not to eat God's word from the tree of life. And so, eating, he shall die. And eating is precisely where God places the curse. Cursed is the ground because of you. We should notice a couple of things. First, God does not curse Adam. God curses the ground. We might expect God to curse Adam to destruction, as he did Satan, but he doesn't. He judges Adam and he introduces sorrow to Adam's labor and difficulty to his survival. Adam's workplace has fallen, but it's not hell. The second thing we should notice is that the Lord God addresses man by his name, Adam. We had no reason to expect that. Look at the text. He addressed Satan as the serpent. He addressed Eve as the woman. But he calls the man by his name, Adam. Even after Adam wrecked the universe, God approaches him as his first created son. I'm not softening what Adam did not softening God's pronouncement God is pronouncing his judgment on Adam for his sin but God even takes Adam's sin personally God's heart is to treat Adam as a son call him by name we need to remember to hear God's words to Adam in light of his words God has already spoken these are hard words for us to hear but we don't need to make them harder by ignoring the words of hope. God's already spoken. In the promise of a Savior in the seed of a woman, God has already spoken words of hope and a future. I mean, don't you think Adam's wondering, okay, my turn, I'm not sure I've got a future here. But he's got hope and a future from the words of God. And that changes how we hear these words of judgment. It changes the context in which they fall. Look at how God spells out Adam's sin. I mean, he just kind of, he takes all these lines to spell it out. Because you have. Okay, Adam's blame shifting fell on deaf ears. God didn't go for it. You have. Because you have. God always matches the right sin to the right person. So here's, here's quick lesson number one for men. Take responsibility for your sin. Men. Take responsibility for your own sin. This is always the best way forward. What did Adam do? Because you have listened to your wife. Okay, so here's quick lesson number two for men. Now, I would just like to say, husbands should always listen to their wives. She has important, smart, insightful things to tell you. Listening to your wife will make you both very happy in marriage. Patiently listening to your wife is always the best way forward. But the word listened here doesn't mean that Adam merely patiently listened. It means that he did what she said. He heeded his wife's words. And what she said was to do what the Lord God had commanded Adam not to do. Adam sinned by following his wife's words instead of God's words. And because of Adam's sin, the earth is cursed. Walk back through all of the days of God's creation work. The earth, which was a blessing to man, is now cursed. Food will no longer be free for the picking. In pain... Adam will have to work the ground, and the ground will fight back. Thorns will grow, where Adam wants plants good for food to grow. The ground will produce thistles and crowd out Adam's crops. You might remember in chapter 2, verse 5, that there were, there were no small plants of the field back then. But now there are. And they're characterized here as grain producers, from which you then have to take and make bread to eat by the sweat of your face productivity will be difficult. And sometimes Adam's labor will be fruitless instead of always fruitful. He will toil all the days of his life. It's interesting that he says days. He will tire. Mm, He's going to toil years, decades. He's going to toil all the days of his life. We live one day at a time. Toilsome day after toilsome day after toilsome day for adam every day day after day will be difficult but not impossible but not impossible adam is not cursed the ground is cursed work is not cursed it was established before the fall that Adam and Eve would work. Work is not cursed. It's just harder than it would have been in the garden paradise. It's a way forward after sin. But God makes it clear that Adam will struggle in pain and toil and sorrow all the days of his life and return to the dust. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. God says something to Adam here, that he doesn't say to Satan, that he doesn't say to the woman. God tells Adam that the wages of sin is death. That's what he says. The wages of sin is death. Why does he tell Adam? Because it is in Adam that death comes to us all. Death does not come to us in Satan. Death does not come to us in Eve. Death comes to us in Adam. Now, now, here is when the full weight of God's prohibition falls upon Adam. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Remember Romans chapter 5? Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because in Adam all sinned. It's, It's kind of poetic justice, isn't it? God formed man from the dust of the earth and breathed life into him and called him to reign over all of the earth because of sin he will toil over the earth and eventually the earth will, will cover him again and we would despair if those were the only words of God that we heard but God has already spoken words of hope So we hear God's judgment on Adam in light of God's promised Savior, the seed of the woman who is Jesus Christ. Praise God. Yes, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have hope of life even in the face of death. Yes, We are born sons of disobedience and children of wrath. But John writes, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of men, but of God. John writes, See what kind of love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. We have hope that the gospel is bearing children itself. Bearing children of light into the kingdom of light. And what gospel hope do we have for marriage? Well, Paul writes, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and his church. Paul writes, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The marriage that we will see in heaven is the one flesh relationship between Christ and his church a beautiful and restored bride. You see, when we take it all in context, the judgment and the promise, in the midst of God's words of judgment on sinners at the fall, we also see God's mercy. Genesis is here to teach us about God. And he's merciful. God did not curse the man and the woman as he did Satan. It's not as bad as it could be. In his mercy, God provides a way forward under his judgment for their sin. It's not hopeless. God gives great hope for marriage and childbearing and life in his promise of the seed of the woman so that we have the hope of salvation through judgment in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the grace and mercy of God and it is the gift of God even in the midst of judgment on our sin. Praise God. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy. We stand amazed that you would treat us in such a gracious way. We're, We're greatly amazed That you would be willing to pay the price for our redemption. The death of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, on the cross. God, we praise you. We magnify you. We exalt Christ. And we say thank you. Thank you for him. Thank you for loving us. Thank you that when we bow our heads in prayer. And call upon your name. You recognize us by name. You take our failures and our victories personally. Who could deny that you are personally invested in your people? God, we praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.